Father, we don't have much to add to those prayers other than to praise you that you are sovereign over all the things that were prayed and everything else. We can rest in you, in our frailty, in our weakness. We can (laughs) trust and rely on uh, your enablement, your strength, your time. It's in your hands and we praise you for it. We desire this time, as we have time together, that uh, your word would come alive to us and would uh, give us a big picture of who you are and what you're doing and what your plan is. And uh, we desire to not only see that, to be able to be, as was already prayed, to be transformed into your image. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Well, this morning, in the book of Romans, as we might even find in other passages in Scripture, most Bible teachers, theologians, have a disconnect or at least in their thinking, they don't tie in science with Scripture. But in reality, there are several statements in Scripture that in fact are, you could even say, scientific statements. And we are going to look at uh, one of the most important ones in the Book of Romans, or at least two major ones, but there's others as well. And I'd like to focus a little bit on that because most people will neglect it. It's it's not that, well, it, it kind of is the main idea, although the main idea is relating to suffering, giving us a big picture in terms of suffering, and uh like to kind of complete that little discussion that we started last time. I gave you five reasons why the believer suffers, five categories, five general reasons that we find in Scripture. And I'll briefly go over those real quick, but I want to focus on the last part and the focus that we have in this passage. And I've got second law up there, mainly because I'm going to focus on one of the clearest statements in Scripture on the second law of thermodynamics is contained in the passage we're looking at. So if you've heard of that and wonder of its implications and its importance, in fact, it's very important in terms of Spiritual things as well. Bill can't contain himself. He's exactly the right. he's, he's the scientist behind. This is uh, when Claudius first discovered the second law three hundred years ago. He said, "All life." The second law of thermodynamics says that much to themselves, all processes move from order to. Yep. All processes move from order. Claudius said the second law violates that all life violates the second law, and it's exactly why evolution. Yep, and that's some of the things that we'll talk about, okay? But before we get into that, the broader context is basically Paul is talking about sanctification. We'll get into that. And one of the main tools that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us, in other words, to bring us into conformity to Jesus Christ, one of the main tools that he uses is, in fact, suffering. So it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's painful and we don't like it and try to avoid it, but uh, Paul gives us a biblical perspective on it in this passage, even a big picture idea concerning suffering, and then we'll talk a little bit about science as we get into the next verse. Christians have suffered throughout history. They died for their faith, some of them at the very spot that those of us that went to Israel recently experienced the Colosseum. 
In fact, if you're inside of it, it gives you the feel of any stadium, football stadium that you could visit today or arena like the pit. And you can imagine uh, thousands of people. In fact, the estimate is that it held about 50,000 people. So that's a pretty good size stadium. And several things were done there, performances, opera, etc. I don't know about opera, but singing, <laughs> speeches, political issues, spectacles. And one of the spectacles was the martyrdom killing of Christians in that very spot. Now, that's a reconstructed stage, but in the, in the first century, the latter half there, Christians suffered in that location. It gives you a different perspective of what it looks like from the air. So the bigger picture in terms of our context, we've discussed justification. We're talking about chapters 6, 7, and 8 that deal with sanctification. That's the Christian life. And we're getting close to the end of chapter 8. I divide it into three parts. We have primarily the principles, the main principles, The main principle is that we are united in Christ and from that united situation of Christ and us and him in us, it is he, we will see in chapter 8, through the Holy Spirit that sanctifies. It's one of the main things that we developed there, but there are several others. There's also issues that arise. I call them problems. Problems, I'm alliterating here. The problems we'll encounter in the Christian walk in trying to be sanctified or trying to grow. And we're in chapter 8 that lays out the power available to live the Christian life. We can't live it on our own strength. That's chapter 7. In fact, if we try, we end up wretched men that we are, as it says in 7.24. Rather, there is the power of the Holy Spirit, so we spend a lot of time in the early part of chapter 8, dealing with that. Verses 1 through 11, power over the sinful flesh. Once we become a believer, we have a new nature, but we're still plagued until we go to be with the Lord with an old nature, old tendency, that past life before we became believers. And there's power available to overcome that. And at the heart of it is we are in a new family. We're, we're sons. We looked at all of the aspects of sonship ended with the idea of heirs. So we have, we have, uh, not only a present inheritance, but future aspects of that inheritance. It's chapter eight, verses 12 through 17. So the concept of sonship in sanctification. And just to remind you, We've already looked at verse 17, this last part. If we are children, in other words, sons, he uses both words, children and sons in the context, heirs also. That means we have an inheritance. And then we did a word study on that. The word group, we noticed that it has four different aspects to it. There's the aspect of present possession. In fact, lots of examples of that in scripture. What we have as heirs, we have access to here and now. We don't have to die. It doesn't have to be a death. In fact, there was a death, death of Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us about that, or at least uses the death of Christ in a inheritance context. So heirs also, so there's a present aspect. There's a future aspect, 
There's some aspects that we will enjoy in the future as well as our inheritance. So heirs also, heirs of God, God himself is our inheritance and all his resources and all that he is. He's given himself to us. Then there's a second category here. Another aspect, fellow heirs. And I think the first one, heirs of God, that's by grace. So that's the third aspect that we looked at. First aspect, present, possession. Second aspect, future aspects that we still possess but do not enjoy until the future. Third aspect is it's by grace, free gift, can't earn it, comes with salvation, just as salvation is free gift by grace. So also is this inheritance that comes with it. But there's also a fourth aspect that we're stressing here, and he's using this to transition and talk a little bit about suffering. Fellow heirs with Christ. We're going to look at some passages that deal with that. Fellow heirs with Christ. And then we have a condition here. If indeed we suffer with him. So there's that fourth aspect of of this inheritance that is contingent on faithfully walking, faithfully living, and particularly in a context of suffering. It's like rewards. In fact, it's analogous and perhaps closely related to future rewards that are above and beyond salvation. Salvation free gift, inheritance free gift. But there's that fourth aspect of inheritance that is dependent on faithfully responding in the midst of suffering. If indeed we suffer with him, so that, in other words, faithfulness in suffering, so that we may also be glorified with him. We will share something of that glory in the future. And from verse 17, he's going to transition now in verse 18, and we'll look at it again. We started to look at it. Just stressing some of the words in there. In fact, when it says, fellow heirs, and indeed if we suffer with him, those phrases are just one word in the Greek text, glorified with him together, third word. And I'm giving you this to stress Paul alliterated as well. I'm not the only one. (laughs) If you notice the outline, I've got verse 18, the antithesis to suffering, A. And then B, the anticipation of future glory, A again. We won't get to it, but uh, the next part in the outline there, the agonizing with glory. You've noticed on my outlines, oftentimes I'll try to alliterate it. I get it from Paul. Just following the example, co-heirs. Notice the Greek word. Sugkleronomoi. Leads, co-heirs, leads to co-suffering. That's the condition, but notice the spelling. Sum, paskomen. Notice that they all start with this soon or sum or sug. Paul is alliterating, and I think deliberately. I think he puts these together. And then that leads to co-glorified or co-glorification. Notice again, it starts with the soon preposition. And then you have the word for glorification. See Paul's alliteration? We're going to see it in the next verse as well. See it? So suffering, beginning in verse 18, we have suffering and sanctification, verses 18 through 30. So it's a long section, and uh, I think it's all related to suffering but from a big picture perspective. In other words, all of 
God's plan, basically, that will be fulfilled. And the suffering we experience now is a very, very tiny part of it. I'll review that to you. So verse 18 is the antithesis to suffering. Is This is the focus that we as believers need to keep in the midst of suffering. And it helps us to go through it because we know that God has a bigger plan than the immediate pain that we are experiencing at the moment. Uh, we looked at the word there. I'm not going to review. We spent some time reviewing it. I consider, but because we're going to talk about science today, I've got a slide here that's going to give you insights that this passage gives you in science, and it starts with this word here, I consider. Remember we looked at it last time? I'll give you a little bit of it, and then I'll expand in terms of its relationship to science. The Greek word logizomai, that's a mathematical term, or it could be used in a mathematics context. Remember logos, logic, we get our word logic, reasoning, the idea from logos and or logizomai, that's the verb, mathematical. It's an accounting term. In other words, you can add things up and come to a sum. And the end of that summation or conclusion, so when Paul says, I consider, I, you could even say, I have concluded after calculation, you might say. It's an accounting term. It could be used in science as well. In science, a reasoned conclusion. Logizomai. After all the data is evaluated, this is what Paul is saying. And Paul has looked comprehensively at suffering in its biggest context, in terms of what God is doing overall. And he's going to go all the way back to Genesis 3, where suffering began. And he's going to trace it all the way into the future, when you and I in present suffering will be freed from it. And that's the essence of what he's talking about. And it's going to include the entire creation. It's going to include all of what God has created. That's the big picture of suffering. Got it? And in that he makes, like I said, some scientific statements. So Paul could have evaluated the second law of thermodynamics. That's one of the statements of it mathematically. You need to know what the Q means, heat absorbed. This is in thermodynamics itself, dealing with heat exchange. Heat absorbed equals work plus two different energy states. The second one is the entropy part of the equation, and there's always a loss. We'll talk about that. But don't get bogged down with the science, all right? <laughs> it's blowing Bill's mind. He's going to have to not. Con- he's going to have to contain himself today. So, science insights. I'm going to use this slide to kind of bring them out. The number one here is we're talking about a reasoned conclusion that Paul has come to. You would even say, in this context, a scientific conclusion after taking in all of the data. And he's taken in the data starting from Genesis 3, and he's worked himself in his thinking and his evaluation in terms of of everything that God has said, including what God is going to do in the future. That makes sense? He's talking science here, guys. For I consider, now he started to talk about suffering. He's going to put it in his context. Suffering of this present time 
And he's going to go back to Genesis, but he's dealing with what are you feeling now? What is your pain now? What is your struggle? What is your things that you are being weighed down with, if you will? And they can come in a variety of forms. They don't all have to be physical. They can be psychological. They can be emotional. They can be in any form that they may come. They may be mental. So all the sufferings of this present time, suffering, the term Pathema, we looked at that last time, I'm just still reviewing, occurs 16 times. It's related to what he just talked about in verse 17, using a different word, but he's still talking about this concept, different words, co-sufferers, that's the one that I just flashed earlier, 8.17. The present time are not worthy, this is what we focused on last week, not worthy to be compared with the glory. So all the way from, in fact, the next verse is going to start with Genesis 3, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And he's evaluated all the data relating to suffering, and it's not worthy to be compared with the glory. I use the analogy from one of the writers that our suffering is like a drop. Okay, In comparison, Paul says, there's no comparison like a drop and... The future glories like an ocean. That was the comparison we drew last time. And in that, let's look up some passages before we get into the scientific passage. Somebody look up Philippians 3.10. And in all of these, pathema is the word. Connie's got it. Who wants to do Hebrews? Mary Lee, First Peter. Dwayne, did you raise your hand or you were just, you were just twitching? Yeah, you twitch and you get called on in this class, so be careful. First Peter, and there's two there. Connie, you got it? 3.10. And this is Christ's suffering, but what I want you to notice also, that he's not only dealing with Christ's suffering, but notice that he weaves in there, in all of these passages, glory, future glory. Go ahead. Not in all of them, but some of them. That I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering. Okay, this is Paul, and he's speaking of the sufferings of Christ that he is experiencing also. Co-suffering with Christ. Here's a passage, and it's what? Related to resurrection. That's future glory. Mary Lee, you got Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. But we see him who for a little while was, this is made, Christ. was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now the, the crowning is present experience. He's at the right hand, but what preceded the glory? Death, suffering and death. Keep reading. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Through suffering. That's one of the purposes of suffering, is to refine us, bring us to perfection, future glory in that context, Christ's suffering. (laughs) Suffering precedes glory. That's present time. And this passage encourages us to suffer with him, as Paul notes in Philippians. First Peter 1.11 Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating 
when he testifies beforehand the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ. In other words, he's speaking of the prophets, and they're thinking in terms of Isaiah 53. When's this going to be fulfilled? The sufferings of this Messiah. We know that it was in Christ. Keep reading. And the glories that would follow. Sufferings, and then what? The glories that are going to follow. So the prophets are thinking comprehensively. They're thinking prophetically. They're thinking in terms of the plan of God. Suffering of the Messiah precedes glory of the Messiah. That's what we have in Romans passage as well. You got 413 as well? I do. You do. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. That's co-suffering with Christ, suffering with him. In other words, faithfully responding in the midst of suffering, that precedes glory. See how glory is in all these passages? These are all parallel, and the same word, pathema, occurs in all of those passages that we have in uh, the Romans 8.18 passage. Our suffering in his suffering. Here's some more passages. Who wants to do 2 Corinthians 1? 2 Corinthians. Jeremy's looking it up. He's thinking there. Colossians 1.24. Anyone got it? Jacob's got it. And since you've got First Peter, just stick in there and I'll let you read 5.9 as well. 2 Corinthians 1. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, The sufferings of Christ are ours, co-suffering. So also our comfort is abundant to you. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. It's effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also Okay, another reason we suffer, another purpose, not only has ramifications in our future glory, but it has ministry in the lives of others here and now as well. Our suffering can uh, be a comfort and encouragement in the Christian walk of the believer here and now. But suffering in Christ. Remember I gave you the five reasons? The first one, we may suffer because we make bad decisions. We go off walking with the Lord and suffer consequences of sin. That is not what we have in this passage, nor any of the passages that we're reading. But that is a reason that some Christians suffer. For their own sin. For their own sin. Their own foolish choices, decisions. We dealt with this last time. I didn't put the slide back up there. Were you here last time? We weren't here last time. You didn't. It was the time before. No, it was last time. Yep. <laughs> both. It was both? Yeah. Second reason is when we go off track, sometimes God intervenes to bring discipline in order to correct, to correct a wrong direction. Now, this is more habitual. In other words, this is more you're heading by pattern in this direction. I'm going to intervene and bring a little bit of pain to awaken you to your wrong direction. We use the Hebrews 12 passage here. Then there's an abundance of passages that speak of God sometimes bringing, number three, third category, simply to refine us. Some of the ones we're looking at here, to refine us, to conform us to his image, working, as we'll see later on in Romans, working all things for good. 
for those that love him and are called according to his purpose, uh, verse 28. We won't get there for a few weeks now. So the third category of reason, and it can include a lot of different areas, is primarily to conform us, or you might say to sanctify us, bring us into conformity to his image. We I gave you a fourth reason. There is some suffering, and normally I leave it for last, but the last one I'm going to leave for the one that we have here that's primary. There's some suffering that we will never know why. We'll never know the reason. And the example is Job himself. I use Job as the example. He didn't have the benefit of what we have. The writer told us what God is doing in the heavenlies. Job had no idea what was going on. And God never gave him an answer. The three friends gave him answers, but they weren't the reason. The fourth one, again, took a different angle. He didn't have the right answer as well. And when God confronts him, God never gives him an answer. He wants him just to trust him, not knowing why he's suffering. Would you not call that a refining suffering because Job's faith was different at the end of the book when he says, now my eyes have seen you, Yes. as opposed to the first of the book where he was... He's questioning, he's wondering, and he's trying to figure this no, thing out. Right. First of the book, he says he was a righteous man and he did everything right. Actually, God says that. Yeah, and, and yeah, God says that he does, but there's a different quality yes, in this yes, yeah. At the first of the He book. grew through the process. So he grew that, through the process. Yes, so he, and now yeah. he says, man, oh, just overwhelmed me. Where before there was not that same feeling of. Yes. Overwhelming. Yes. Yeah. So four reasons. We can suffer consequences of our own sin. That's not what's here. We may be disciplined. That's not necessarily here, but it could, if we respond rightly, could be included in the Romans passage, co-suffering with Christ. The refining aspect, that could be included, but it's not the primary reason. Unknown reasons. And then fifthly, suffering... Simply because we're believers, simply because we name the name of Christ. Some passages speak of suffering for righteousness sake. That's what's primarily in view in uh, suffering with Christ. And a significant piece that adds to your unknown reason is that, that God not only told, not only did not give uh, Job the reason why, but fundamentally told him the right thing. You could say that. And I think that that's an important point. Yeah. Because Job's position before God, as we said, really shifted. He said, now I've seen you with my eyes and I despise myself. And you are enough. Exactly. And that was God's point. Look, I'm enough. You don't need to know. That's right. Don't have a need to know. Why are you doing this to me? Because I have been right. I agree with that. Right. So I see that as a Exactly. Did we read Colossians 1.24? No, not yet. Jacob's got it. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. That's suffering for righteousness' sake. We can even rejoice in it because we have God's perspective on it. Keep reading. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the shoes of Christ. Filling up the sufferings of Christ. That's co-suffering. And he uses pathema in that context. Keep reading. Good. For the sake of his body, which is the church. For our sake. 
We not only suffer on behalf and with Christ, but it benefits the rest of the body of Christ. For the sake of time, let's skip 1 Peter 5.9. You might jot it down and you can read it. It's very similar. In fact, 1 Peter, the main theme of that whole book is suffering. And in the book, he distinguishes some of some of these categories that I gave you. But most of the suffering that he's talking about is as a result of the audience that he writes to suffering for righteousness' sake. In fact, he uses <coughs> that phrase. So it can be, it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be mental, it could be spiritual, it can come in a variety of forms. But in any of those forms, God wants us to have his perspective on it and respond rightly to it. So that's suffering. That is to, let's see, for I consider the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Our sufferings like a drop compared to the glory, which is like an ocean that is to be revealed to us. And now he's going to talk about this future revealing and how it includes very comprehensively all of the creation. Adding another principle here, number 22, suffering is God's main tool for sanctification. Just to kind of wrap up our little issue on suffering. I mean, we're not going to finish it, but we're going to look at it from God's perspective in terms of the big, big picture. So verse 19 and 19 through 21, I call it the anticipation of glory. And even the creation, that's the focus there, is anticipating glory. 18, antithesis to suffering, that's glory. Anticipation of glory, 19 through 21. And I've broken this one down into a few parts. The waiting of creation, 819. For the anxious longing, in the Greek, that's one word. I'll show it to you in a moment. And we're going to see Paul alliterates here as well. For the anxious longing of the creation, in fact, here's the Greek word, and I use this imagery because it gives us a little picture of the word. Notice, and I've kind of color-coded it here, uh, apokaradokia, notice it starts with the A-P-O, and in fact, even a K, this is Paul's alliteration. The other three words, main words in this context, all start with this Greek preposition, apo. Spelling varies depending on what it's attached to. But it has this idea of eager expectation. It's like stretching out your neck to be able to see. In other words, you are looking intently and you have to kind of lean over to see. Or like a giraffe, you got to stretch your neck out in order to see. That's why I use the imagery there. That's the idea of the the word that we have here, the anxious longing, eager expectation. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. The anxious longing, that's that word I just showed you, the waits eagerly is another word that starts with the apo preposition. Notice, apodekomai, this is actually apo, but... The lettering changes depending on what follows it. So Paul is alliterating again, and he starts the next part of the verse with a kappa here. Apekdekomai, waiting in great anticipation. 
again, you're kind of stretching out to, to anticipate what God has for you. There's a third word. For the revealing of the sons of God. This is what we anticipate. This is future. And we're going to look at more detail concerning that future expectation, that future revealing, the thing that we wait for. So in the middle of suffering, our perspective is, let me stretch my neck out further into the future to be able to anticipate and wait eagerly. And the more intense the suffering the more desirous and the more we anticipate what God has in the future. So we have kind of a transitional verse here in terms of this anticipation. And it's the creation that is anticipating here. But let me show you the third word. The revealing starts very similarly, apo, and then with a kappa, apo preposition. And you probably remember this one. We've talked about it before. Apocalypsis, apocalypsis, where have you seen that word before? The apocalypse, that's the title of the book of Revelation. That's the first word in the book of Revelation. It's the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling, it's a revealing, it's an exposing of something that is hidden and not seen. The future is obscure to us. We have no idea what is in the future apart from what God has revealed. It's a revealing. But what I want you to notice is Paul's alliteration here. All three of the main words in there start identical. And together they give this idea of great anticipation of the creation. So he's going to now talk about the creation. Suffering in its broadest context. Even the creation, he's going to tell us, is in a sense suffering a malady that it was not present from the beginning. When God created, he created a very good creation. And even the creation, in a sense, now, the creation doesn't have rational thought, it doesn't have emotions. What he's doing is he's personifying, in other words, personification is this idea or figure of speech where you give personality to things that don't have personality. Chairs don't have personality, rocks don't have personality, but from the literary perspective, we're giving personality to them when we speak of them in terms of feelings and rational thought. So in that sense, the creation is anticipating what we are anticipating, and it's the revealing or the uncovering, the unveiling. So we have another insight into science here that we can draw from verse 19. Whenever in science you have a hypothesis, particularly dealing with past events, you can create what's called a model, a scientific model, to explain certain phenomenon. And from that model, you can derive predictions in that model. Does that make sense? Bill can give you a lot more detail than what I'm giving you. In terms of creating, in other words, I've got this idea, I've got this hypothesis, what do I anticipate coming from that in a future situation of phenomenon? Paul is laying this out. There's a future that we anticipate here. A prediction, and in fact, this is a literal Bible prediction of what's going to happen. 
But because we have a scientific biblical model, we can have scientific predictions. We have that here as well. That's why I say this is one of the clearest scientific statements in all of Scripture. That leads us to verse 20, the subjecting of creation. In other words, the malady, the suffering, the disorder, you might say, of the creation. Now he's going to describe that in verse 20, and unfortunately we don't have time to get into it. It means you have to come back. <laughs> Let me introduce you to it. For the creation was subjected to futility. That is the beginning of the second law of thermodynamics. And notice several things in there. Uh, let's look at the terms, first of all. First of all, the word creation. i just give you the Greek word there, just for you Greek students. But what's in view here, he's talking now about the natural realm. And this word occurs, do I have it on there? Can't remember, I think 19 times in the in the New Testament. That might not be right. Is that right? Oh, there it is. Six times in Romans. We saw it in chapter 1. It's going to be five times in Romans 8. Four of them right here in the passage we're dealing with. From verse 20 to actually verse 19 to verse 22. Four times. It deals with the natural realm. So he's talking about science. He's talking about the creation, the natural realm, the thing that science devotes itself to. And the verb to subject, hupotasso, very common word, has the idea of putting something under something else, or to subject. It's the word uh, that is difficult for many women. The Bible speaks of them subjecting to their husband voluntarily. That's the word that is used in most of those contexts. It's a, it's a military term in terms of an army subjecting an enemy to defeat. So it's a very strong term. That's the word in terms of action that was taken on the creation. It was subjected, and the text says, not of its own will. There's a lot of other little details that we'll look at here. I'm just introducing it to you. In this context, I take it as an authoritative subjecting by God. That's the context. That's the teaching. There's another word there, futility. And I give you the Greek word as well, just so that you have it. And it basically has the idea of emptiness or not meeting its purpose. In other words, something is lost here. Something is damaged. And it cannot fulfill its ultimate and total purpose. And it's something that God has imposed on the creation. So those are your key words in uh, verse 20. And we'll close with a couple more little science insights here. We have a reason conclusion, beginning in verse 18. We have a prediction that Paul makes for this model, or an anticipation of an outcome, anticipation of what you would expect from this model. You also have, it's in the aorist tense, to subject is in the aorist tense. That means it's something that was completed in the past. And in this case, at a point in time. We're talking about a historical event. This is not a philosophical idea. This is a real historical event that could have been observed, in fact was observed by Adam and Eve. 
is observed today. And observed today because it continues, because we are still within that condition. All right? And it's also in the passive. The verb to subject is in the passive. And what that means is that the creation is acted upon by an outside cause. These are all scientific concepts. An outside cause. By the way, Bill, I've got ten of them. So you got to come back next week. <laughs> Lord willing. Lord willing. Okay, you want another one? Yeah. He's talking about a change in the physical realm. A radical change in the physical realm that took place at a point in time in history. And the record of that is Genesis chapter 3. Got it? So when people say, when you talk about religion, it has nothing to do with science. Religion is man's opinion. And if you want real truth, then you have to go to the sciences. Well, the sciences are based on what God has revealed. And real truth, absolute truth, is what you have in like Romans 8. Well, science can tell us what is, but they cannot tell us why it is what it is. And the Bible does both. And the Bible does. Does yeah. both. But science can, science tells us what is. Yep. Second law of the internet. Okay, we didn't even get into, we didn't even get into physics today. We'll, we'll save a little bit more physics of the science for <clears throat> next week. This introduces you to the second law of thermodynamics. What we have in this passage is the ultimate goal of sanctification. It deals with the entire creation and it involves glory. Who wants to close for us? We need another scientist to close for us. Jacob. Father God, who are you and thankful to be in believers in Revelation? And I think how awestruck we all are in speaking who you are. Always to go through it.